Hello, everyone. I'm Abhijat Saraswath, and you're listening to the Fringe Legal Podcast. This is a show where I discuss the future of the legal profession with practitioners, thinkers, and innovators. The future is, of course, a topic that's becoming more important than ever, especially in these turbulent times. And I do hope you're all keeping well and safe. Before we get started, if you haven't already, be sure to subscribe to the Fringe Legal Newsletter. This is a weekly roundup of interesting things. Every Sunday, I send out an exclusive email with three to five of the coolest things we've explored that week. It could include exclusive content, sneak peek at future projects, books, articles, or new hacks. The emails are available only if you subscribe to the newsletter, and more than 530 people receive it every single week. You can join up at fringelegal.com slash newsletter. It's completely free. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Fringe Legal Podcast. I am thrilled to have Alice Stevenson as my guest today. Alice is the founder and a tech lawyer driving inclusion and innovation in law and promoting individuality within the legal profession. Alice founded Stevenson Law in 2017 to create a law firm that does things differently. Alice's goal is to inspire young women to challenge the perceived barriers to succeed and see that anything's possible. We'll dig into much of that today, but before we get started, I thought it'd be helpful to give a little bit of a background of Alice's story uh, if you haven't come across it already. So Alice is probably not the person you would imagine when you think of a lawyer and a law firm owner. She had her first child at 18 and despite conventional wisdom, qualified as a lawyer nine months after having her second child, and the theme of nine months continues because nine months after having her third child, she founded Stevenson Law. And the firm is doing wonderfully. They won Boutique Law Firm of the Year 2020. And yeah, I'm really thrilled to have Alice on the show because I came across her on LinkedIn through one of her posts where she talked about all of the different barriers she had to break down to enter the legal profession. And I know plenty of people uh, for whom that actually becomes a hurdle they haven't been able to overcome for many reasons. So I thought it was important to have a discussion around that. Alice, thank you so much for coming on the show. Hi, thank you for having me. Yeah. And I know you're based on the other side of the world. Uh, you have a very English accent, but you're in Amsterdam. So hopefully the canals and the cycling and everything else is treating you nicely. Yes. Yeah. Thank you. <laughs> so there's really three things I wanted to try and cover today. We'll start with something that relates to your story. You talk a lot about breaking down barriers. And as I mentioned in the prelude, that's how I came across you. You've been, let's call it outspoken on LinkedIn and rightly so around how to make the profession less gray and more individual and helping people to bring about their personality. We talked about tattoos and uh, you've talked about tattoos in the past and I have a whole back full of tattoos. So I certainly admire that. And you've talked about how being a woman or having kids at an early stage and basically how all the challenges you had to overcome to get to where you are. Talk to me where you are today with that and how that shaped your journey into the legal profession. Sure. I think we all have so many challenges and obstacles that we come up against, whatever path we choose. But I guess we all have slightly different ways of dealing with them and approaching them. I think you know, my biggest obstacle has always been having a child at such a young age. I was only 18 when I had Lydia. And that was obviously a massive obstacle to, to starting a career, to getting, to getting my first degree, 
obviously having her has been one of the most wonderful things in my life but there's no doubt that it's certainly made some things a lot harder particularly because I didn't have a lot of support at the time so I think I launched into adulthood with a pretty big problem that I needed to deal with like how was I going to support myself and support my child and make something of myself and I had to get on with it really I just I I tackled it a bit like just a problem. If I want to get a job that's going to pay me a decent salary, then convention dictates that the best way of doing that is to get a degree, to get education. So I followed a bit of a kind of process really and figured out the best way that I was going to be able to do it, which university I went to, which course I went to, how I was going to pay for that, all of the different parts of the puzzle and then fitted them all together And I've applied that logic to all of the problems that I've encountered ever since then. So when I applied to getting a training contract, I had a problem because I didn't get very good A-levels because when I took my A-levels, I was seven months pregnant. And obviously lots of law firms still take A-levels into account. That made things a lot harder and had to find a way around that. And then starting my own firm, so many people told me, I wasn't going to be able to do it there were going to be there were so many reasons the insurance was going to be too expensive or I wasn't even going to be able to get insurance I wasn't going to be able to get authorization from the SRA I wasn't going to be able to you know find any clients I wasn't going to be able to find anyone to work for me I wasn't going to be able to make any money honestly the list was endless and I could have quite easily have just thought oh do you know what this sounds like far too much effort required I'm not going to bother But I think that's not really the way that my brain works. I look at each part of it as an individual problem and try and solve that problem and break it down into small chunks. And what happens is when you do that, actually, it, it does all fall into place and you kind of you move along one small step at a time. But when you look back, you actually realize how much you've achieved just by doing it like that. There's so many things that you're saying, some of which I can definitely relate to, because just getting into law school, getting into university, it's a challenge and you have to keep going. Sometimes you do have to problem solve. And the law firm point is so interesting because I know so many tech company founders and generally the message that they get uh, across the board is not that, oh, don't do it, right? It's almost a Silicon Valley culture of, you should do it, just jump in, it's okay, it'll be difficult. No one no one argues that it's going to be difficult, but you can figure it out. But for law and fintech and a lot of these kinds of quite heavily regulated professions, it's almost there's a hindrance for new entrants. And then we have this conversation, oh, the profession's not changing, things aren't changing, they're the same. And there is a very real linked to you keep discouraging people from coming in and trying new ideas why do you think things will change I'm, I'm sure things as you've been progressing with the firm haven't just got magically easier so how do you tackle challenges today how do you think about them now because I think probably I'm making this assumption that the types of challenges and the problems you're looking to solve today are probably quite different to when you were 18, but it's your methodology kind of similar or are you thinking about problem solving in a different way? I think fundamentally I'm still the same person and I still 
largely have the same approach, but I've learned so much over the last 20 years. And obviously that does affect the way that I approach problems. I think, you know, some of the key things that I've learned are that I can't do everything myself. I've always had this this drive to be fiercely independent and to show people that I'm very capable. And there's almost this kind of feeling that if you rely on other people, then that's somehow a poor reflection on you. But one of the things that I've really learned over the last couple of years is that you need other people. You, you can't do it all yourself. You can't know everything yourself. It's just not possible. And actually, there are so many people out there that can do stuff that's the way better than you could possibly do it it's really important I think to be able to self-reflect on the things that you're good at the things that you're not good at and to build a team around you whether you're running a business or even just in your personal life whatever it is that you're doing you still need that support network around you and you still need people to be able to help you in the areas that you're not so strong at. I definitely now, more so than I did in the past, rely on my my support network a lot more when I'm making decisions. And I guess as I've got older, I've probably become a little bit less impulsive about making decisions. And I have to be now. I've got a reasonably sized business considering where it's come from. And I've got three children. I've got pe- lots of people are, res- are dependent on me. And I've got a responsibility to them to do what's in their best interest. I'm definitely less inclined to rush into decisions. Although I'm still very much led by my gut. I'm definitely a very sort of instinctual person I have strong instincts and my gut doesn't normally let me down but it's a kind of assessment now of this is what my gut's telling me this is what the facts are telling me this is what the people around me that know more than I do are telling me and putting all of that together and deciding what's the best what's the best thing to do in this situation yeah I'm always really fascinated around how people make decisions and your points about self-reflection i have arguments with my wife because she's the same way where she's i make decisions from my instincts and my gut and this is where i put my sort of scientist hat on that's great so do most people but i like to be able to validate them and i guess like sometimes as I've matured and learn a bit more, it's the same thing. They're just called mental models, but it's the same sort of thing where i like to hone in even if i'm making a gut decision on reflecting on it why did I lean that way what was the reason that led me to that that's just me personally but because similar to you I I try not to be super impulsive but there are times where you need to be able to make a decision without needing to spend days thinking about it or hours thinking about it yeah is that as you think about self-reflection I'm just curious how what's your process do you have a process How, how do you get through sort of those reflection points Yeah, I think exercises is a really important part of my life and way of de-stressing and clearing my mind. I think in terms of what prompts me to self-reflect, I think I've made quite a lot of mistakes over the last three years, three and a half years since I started my business. Things haven't gone the way that I've wanted them to go. And I think I think it's really important that every time that happens, I reflect on, you know, what's caused this to go wrong and what's my part been in that. We can't all make the right decisions all the time because obviously with the benefit of hindsight, 
that's a wonderful thing. It's not so much about kind of beating yourself up and thinking, I should have known that was the wrong decision when I made it. But I think there's still always things that you can learn from it. So like recruitment has been a massive learning curve for us because I'm quite an instinctual. That kind of fed into my recruitment. And there's a couple of problems with that. A, I think you, I can't assess somebody's professional competence through my instinct. I can assess whether... I think they're going to be a good cultural fit for the business, whether I think they've got the right attitude for what I need. But I can't assess somebody's professional skills and competence as a lawyer that way. And I think the other issue with that is that you're not taking into account any unconscious bias that you've got as well, which is obviously really important. So, and I guess we've had some recruitment decisions that haven't worked out. And then you go back and reflect on why didn't that work out? And actually... Our recruitment process is just not good enough. We're not evaluating people properly. We're not giving people an opportunity to demonstrate their skills and and we're not making the right decisions. So it's that kind of process that we're working through all of the time. Yeah, and I love that because I imagine as you transition from a lawyer, a legal practitioner, consultant, all of those things to a business owner, and then as you scale the business, there's probably a whole plethora of things that you have no experience and probably don't even know where to begin (laughs) recruitment building your tech stack around you selecting the right team knowing who where you need to expand i know one of the things a firm does differently maybe not differently but certainly that stands out to me is you have a social media marketing manager right that's not really that common within the legal sphere how do you learn who to hire, what qualities to look for, because the lawyer lens is probably going to lead you into a direction that may not be what you want if you're trying to set up a different firm. And hopefully that's a good enough segue to that topic. As you've been growing Stevenson Law, I know you talk about the firm being different and I imagine it feels different to your clients. What is the client experience like? So if I only as a client, I've only experienced traditional law, quote unquote, that for anyone listening rather than watching, what would coming to you, what would my experience feel like? Would it feel like I've just stepped into a startup in the 2010s or would it feel like a hybrid between a traditional law firm and a startup? Where, where would you land? Yeah, it's a really interesting question. And it's probably one that we should actually go out and ask our clients to see what they actually would say about this. I think one of our USPs, which has been taken away from us slightly, is now everybody is home working, I think, was the fact that when our clients met us, we are a lot more relaxed, like we don't dress up in suits, we didn't have formal corporate offices everything about where we work and what we wear has always been a lot more relaxed and that was definitely something that made quite a first impression for clients when they came and met us because it didn't feel like they were coming to meet a lawyer it felt like they were going to chat to anybody a marketing agency or a development agency but I guess the ethos of what that was all about is still there in the sense that What we're trying to do, and I talk a lot about breaking down barriers, and there's a lot of barriers that exist between law firms and clients. And one of those, for example, is language. So lawyers like to use a lot of language that that non-lawyers don't necessarily understand unless they went to law school. And a lot of that language is completely 
pointless, doesn't need to be used. And actually trying to communicate in a way that actually just lawyers can understand is just better for everybody. They can understand what you're saying. You can engage with your clients better. And from the client perspective, it's a much more enjoyable experience because they know what on earth is going on. Language is obviously one of them. We're trying to offer our services in a slightly different way as well. So our primary method of, of providing legal services is through subscriptions and we're we're in the process at the moment of developing our different subscription models but it's a really exciting opportunity for us I think to be able to deliver legal services in a slightly different more productized way to our clients so that they've got a lot more transparency around what they're going to get how much it's going to cost them who they're going to be working with and seeing us a bit more like a kind of SaaS provider in that sense, rather than rather than a law firm that nobody really understands what is going on or what they're paying, what they're paying for, all of those things. I think there's a real lack of transparency typically around that. And I think that obviously shows in the makeup of your team, as I was looking through you know, the other individuals at Stevenson Law, your wider team, you have someone who manages your subscriptions. So at least to me, it's a strong signal that you take those kinds of things seriously. It's not just, hey, we're doing it just because we want to let it be known that we're doing it. You're actually building processes around that. And that's super important. The language thing is so crucial because contracting should be more human generally speaking and basically using jargon builds barriers rather than breaks those barriers if you want two parties to agree on something make it as easy for both parties to understand the terms equally without requiring additional help of course you need to make sure that it's still it offers you the same protections and all of that kind of stuff but I think it's certainly achievable, not easy, but achievable. And the transparency point is key. One of the things that gets talked about a lot is the the point about the billable hour, right? On why it's dying, all of that kind of stuff. And I, I don't expect you to spill all of your secrets around pricing and how you price. Uh, absolutely not. But how do you think about in, in lieu of having billable targets for your lawyers. And maybe I'm thinking more from a culture point of view, because those that are coming in and joining your firm as a fee there, if they're only used to having billable targets, right? How do they adjust into having and working with a different model where there isn't that number target on their head that you have to achieve 2,800 hours a year or whatever it might be? How do they feel and how do you encourage them to basically link what they do to the value they're providing to the clients and the revenue and profitability for the business? It's a really difficult question and I can't actually claim to know the answer to this because it's something that we're trying to figure out ourselves. The billable hour is still really important. The moment we haven't found a replacement for it, although we are trying to to step away from it as much as possible when it comes to the way that we're charging for our work. But ultimately, we're still a service-based business and our primary unit of is, is time. So the, the billable hour is, is still there. What we try and do is view it slightly differently. So 
I think there's probably three aspects to the billable hour. There's how do you charge for your time? How do you measure the performance of your lawyers? And there's how do you measure the revenue and the profitability and the internal financial metrics of the business? The billable hour is overused as a performance metric for lawyers. I think too much emphasis is put on it. And what we should be doing is taking a much more holistic view over performance. I've heard so many stories about people being refused, passed over for promotion because they haven't met a billable hours target, but they were on secondment for half of the year. So there was just no way that they could have met it. There's just some ridiculous reason that in no way reflects on their ability to do their job. But because they haven't ticked that box they've hit a blocker. And I think that is really wrong. I think there's also, there's also the aspect that I think recording and measuring people by billable hours encourages people to be inefficient. It encourages time dumping. It encourages people to work really slowly. It doesn't encourage collaboration between the team I've seen it myself when I was in private practice people hog work because they know that if they give this work away then they're not going to be able to meet their target even though they might not be the best person to be doing that work in the first place as you said at the beginning just there there needs to be a good replacement it's breaking any habit you need to replace it with something and my concern because I hear so many of those stories some of what you said I haven't come across but I hear certainly a lot of people overworking so again you're creating this culture where people almost wear it as a badge of honor hey I was up till two three o'clock in the morning working away and it's not okay because it's not sustainable it's just not sustainable yeah fine if you have to do it we've all done it at some point and it's okay if you have to do it every now and then but it shouldn't be something that you're proud of and it shouldn't be something as a responsible business you should be like great I'm so happy that you're working 18 19 hours a day repeatedly and it's just creating the culture and providing the incentives that drive towards that culture and at the moment, there's a misalignment there because the things that you talked about, Sekondman, I know you went and you worked for EE and other companies. I know many people who are all sorts of exceptional other types of individuals because they've taken secondments, because they've spent the time working on client side, because mm. you get a fresh perspective. But if you feel as if there's going to be a penalty for it because you can't now hit your target, then, you know, many people will not choose that option where actually probably for the long-term benefit of the firm, that's the thing they should be doing. Yeah, 100%. Perfect. Look, I'm conscious of your time. We have about five or so minutes left. I I know you're very open and um, visible everywhere. And actually, I love that because it allows me to do my research and find out that you're into CrossFit, that you're into plant-based lifestyle and all of those things. And one of the things that it's near and dear to you is how do you help Sydney young women break down the barriers? So we'll focus on that audience for now, that demographic for the moment. So yeah, the platform is yours uh, to share your message as much as you want on this, on how to encourage young women to break down barriers. Okay. I think the primary way in which I'm trying to do that is through sharing my own story, sharing my own thoughts and opinions challenging perspectives that I think are outdated so for example a lot of the inclusion and equality issues in the legal industry 
sort of trying to challenge those and the people that hold those perspectives. Unfortunately, I don't have the time to work with people on a one-to-one basis, although I'd love to be able to do that one day. But at the moment, it's not something that I can do. I get a lot of messages from people saying that just through reading about what I've overcome and how I've done that, that actually that's really helped them to feel a bit more confident to not give up hope whether it's trying to find a training contract so like I've got my blog where I've written about some tips to try and get training contracts or tips to start a law firm so it's just trying to put as much helpful content out there as possible whether it's practical tips whether it's just a bit of motivation you can do this don't give up honestly you can absolutely do this but it's talking to people like you as well to help share the message you know and and it is I think it is working like you said I'm quite visible now on social media and people are picking up on it and and I think that's great because I do get lots of really lovely messages from people saying that my content does help them and, and that's what it's all for, really. So that's really great. Yeah, and I love that you are on so many different uh, networks. Uh, I think, is it right that you, Stevenson Law is the first law firm, English law firm, to be on TikTok? We do think so. We haven't been able to find <laughs> any others. Right. So we've claimed that title and we haven't yet been challenged on it. So yes. <laughs> Fair enough, yeah. Uh, and I, I think it's good, right? It shows that sort of that level of personality that often is missing. And I, I have to say one of the side effects and the nice things that's happened uh, since the whole world has gone into lockdown and so on you get to see a lot more into people's lives, right? It's no longer just a sort of corporate background. I love the fact that people's calls are interrupted by their dogs or their kids delivering cookies and things of that nature, because it's wonderful. It's fine. It's real life. It happens. And it's really nice to be able to see that. And I, I, I did, I saw the, I think the video that you posted of your PA or assistant just interrupting your call accidentally. And those kinds of things are good, right? Sometimes you just need a good laugh. Yeah, absolutely. Yep. It's all serious enough at the moment. <laughs> For sure. So if people want to find out more about you and what you do, I know you said you have a blog and that's probably the best place because I know that links out to all of your socials, all of the articles and things you've been featured in. Is that alicestevenson.com? Yes, alicestevenson.com. Yeah. Perfect. So I'll link to that. I'll link to your socials as well. Thank you so much for coming on. It's been a pleasure speaking to you and I hope you enjoy the rest of your day. Thank you and you. Thank you for listening and I hope you enjoyed that discussion. Before you go, please share this with one other person and leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcast or wherever you listen. This podcast was produced by me, Abhijat Saraswath. Paula Chrysostomu is the manager for the show and Pretty Saraswath is the content strategist. You can listen to all previous episodes and reach out to us at fringelegal.com. Thank you.